Amen. Revelation chapter 16 is our text today. I invite you to turn with me, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 9 as we continue our study verse by verse uh, in this amazing book of the Apocalypse, which is a fancy word that means an unveiling or a revealing. And the unveiling or the revealing that we have before us in these 22 chapters of Revelation is the, not only the unveiling of the end times, but also, and more importantly, the supremacy of Christ, His preeminence, who He is, His personage. And so Revelation is not for the faint of heart. And I just got to stop and commend you, Great Hills Baptist Church, for listening and studying and learning from this most um, amazing book. We're in chapter 16. Today is the seven uh, bold judgments. We only have time to study the first four. And then next time, after Father's Day message and after uh, a time of vacation Bible school and celebrating and laughing with uh, Dennis Swanberg on the 28th, uh, we will resume and pick back up our our study, and that will already be July. So we're in Revelation 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 in just a moment. Currently reading a a biography, a fascinating biography on uh, the Wright brothers. Uh, That would be Wilbur and Orville Wright. And the author is a man by the name of David McCullough. I think I've read most everything he has written. He's my favorite uh, historian. He is my favorite uh, biographer. And in this uh, book, he reveals, he unveils, if you will, the story of these two very humble, unassuming, yet highly, incredibly intelligent brothers uh, there in Dayton, uh, Ohio. Their dad was a pastor. I found that very fascinating and interesting. They called him Bishop Wright, Bishop Milton Wright. He loved the Lord. He loved his wife, though she passed away early on in life. Uh, And he loved his five kids. And Wilbur and Orville, who would have ever thought it? These two men had a dream, had a vision. And what they did is they looked up in the, in the sky above, they looked in the heavens, and they saw those birds. And their supposition was, if the birds can do it, surely a mankind can do it. We can fly like the birds of the air. And people thought they had lost their ever-loving mind. They laughed at them. They ridiculed them. And so around the turn of the century, the 20th century, they made their way to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, on the Outer Banks. And I have been there. And it is a pretty barren place, by the way. It is just open expanse, lots of sand, and lots of wind. And that's what they needed. For the first few years they went to Kitty Hawk, all they did was they created a glider, which was not, that was not very unprecedented. There were gliders all over the world, especially in France. The French were incredibly fascinated with aviation, anything that had to do with Uh, aerodynamics, they were just absolutely intrigued with it. But the Wright brothers, they did something on December the 17th, 1903, that had never, ever been done before. They took that glider and they put on the back of it an engine. And they took off, and but for a few brief momentary moments, they flew and they knew they had cracked the code. Well, nobody knew about it. Now, you're going to remember, 1903, they didn't have television and radio. They didn't have the internet, for sure. They did have a photography, but there were no photographers there. They had already gone a few years, but it was in 1903 that they put the engine on the back and flew just a little. Well, Wilbur knew he was onto something, so he went to the governments of America, Germany, and France and said, 
we have created a flying aircraft with an engine. Do you think the War Department would be interested? And they laughed at him. They said, what? Only birds can fly. We don't believe it. Show us. And they're like, well, no, trust us. We have done it. We've cracked the code, and we're here to, to sell it to you. And they laughed at him. It was not until Wilbur went to France and Orville to Washington, D.C., and there they actually demonstrated it. And I'm telling you, people's eyes, they popped out of their sockets, their jaws dropped to the ground, and they thought, oh my word, you guys, you two very humble, unassuming guys from Dayton, Ohio, you have cracked the code. You can fly. This is one of the greatest days in the history of mankind. And they didn't laugh at them anymore. In fact, overnight, they became celebrities. And thousands multiplied, thousands of people would throng them wherever they would go just to touch the men who created the first flying engine-propelled aircraft. You know, during those hard days, and by the way, have you ever noticed that anything worth attaining, anything that, uh, that has a modicum of greatness always has a great price to pay? And so as they were being ridiculed and laughed, even though they had already flown and people just ridiculed them, laughed, especially in France, they just thought they had lost their minds. And their dad came to them, Bishop Wright, and after Orville had crashed, and he crashed with a man flying with him, a man by the name of Lieutenant Selfridge. And as he, um, Jared, you want to sit down there with Brother James? Okay. You're all right. Hey, buddy. He's giving me the thumbs up. He's good. I'm good. Here's the quote that he said to his brother, to his son, Orville Wright. And I've written it down. I don't want to miss it. Let me, I don't want you to miss it. This is what he said. He said, We learn much by tribulation, and by adversity our hearts are made better. That's what he told his son Orville after he crashed and after a person's life had been taken, Lieutenant Selfridge. He said these words. He said, we learn much by tribulation and by adversity. Our hearts are made all the better. And you know what? That is true except for one time frame in the future of the world. Through adversity and tribulation, mankind will not be made better. They will at that time raise their fist up to God and shake their fist at the God of heaven. I find it absolutely phenomenal and fascinating that the God who created us and the God who woos us with His love, if we reject Him, our hearts are not made more like Him and want to love Him, but the more we reject Him, the more defiant and recalcitrant and stubborn we become. So I want to read for you Revelation 16. I want to show you this in verse 9 where tribulation and adversity, instead of casting ourselves upon the mercy of God, it causes us to become defiant. He says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, He said, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first angel went out and he poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and a loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel, now this would be the second of seven angels. We're only going to study four today, but the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, now here it is, 
You say, why would God do this? Why would God pour out His wrath and His vengeance and His retaliation upon the inhabitants of planet earth? And here's the answer, it's because you are righteous, O Lord. You are the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood. And please underscore that. God's just not some capricious, heavenly, cosmic being up there with His arms crossed, with lasers in His eyes, just ready to zap. No, God is just and true and righteous altogether. And because mankind sheds the blood of the saints and the prophets, God now gives them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, this is an angel, and he says, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed. Now notice this, verse 9, the tribulation and the adversity. Instead of making their hearts, you know, warm towards God and saying, God, forgive us. God, we have sinned against you. God, we have worshipped Satan himself, the Antichrist. We have shed the blood of your saints and your prophets. God, we have stubbornly, defiantly shaken our fist up to you. God, you have punished us. God, please have mercy on us and forgive us. That's not what happens. They blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not. Notice this. They did not repent and give Him glory. Revelation 16 is one of these fascinating, to me, very intriguing passages of Scripture. In fact, 11 times in chapter 16, the word mega is used, 11 times the word great or powerful or awesome. And so what we have here in Revelation 16 is the beginning of the seven last judgments of God to be poured out on planet earth. If you'll remember with me by way of summary, you had the seven sealed judgments, you have the seven trumpet judgments, and then finally you have the seven, what is called the, the bowl judgments of God as He pours out on planet earth. One writer puts it this way, he says, the first four affect individuals directly, either through personal affliction or through objects of nature. But the last three, the last three of the seven plagues they are more of an international scale leading the way to a final major confrontation. So what I want to do this morning is chapter 16, I want to walk you through verses 1 through 9, and we're going to study these four bold judgments. And I don't know what this does to you when you hear this, when you hear a message like this, but I know what it does to me. And toward the end of the sermon, I'm going to tell you precisely what this passage of Scripture did to me, how it literally changed my life, Revelation chapter 16. So before we get to number one, the first plague, the painful sores, let's go to verse one and see what's going on. John says in this vision of, of the heavens above, he said, I heard a loud voice uh, from the temple saying to the seven angels, and there's two verbs here, and they both are in the imperative language of command. The first one is a present imperative, it says go, and it's a present tense which means keep on going angel until we have completed the judgments of God on planet earth. He says, go and ekeo. Now this is an interesting word. I'm in Revelation 16 verse 1 where it says, go and ekeo means to pour out, to lavish upon the bowls of wrath of, of God upon the earth. Interesting in Acts 2.17, this is the same word used where it says, God poured out His Holy Spirit 
on planet Earth. Thank you so much, Terry, for that song. I love that song. I, I can't hardly contain myself when I'm hearing that song, riding down the, uh, the road and listening to Francesca Battistelli sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. That's the same Greek word. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, that God lavished, God poured out in abundance His Holy Spirit on planet Earth, and it was the spirit of joy and peace, and, and the Holy Spirit of God came down at Pentecost. But here, it's entirely different. God pours out. He does pour out, but instead of a spirit of joy and peace, the Holy Spirit, He pours out a spirit of wrath and judgment and condemnation. And you may ask, you may say, but why, Brother Danny, why on earth would God be so vengeful? Why would God retaliate? And here's why. I've said this many times. I want to say it again. Sin is always judged. God will judge our sins. He will judge them through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross where you and I are forgiven of our sins, or we are judged for our sins. I don't know about you, but I would much rather have Jesus bear the brunt of my sin than me trying to bear the brunt of my sin. And you know what it takes? All it takes is say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sin. And God forgives us. He cleanses us. And He allows us to go to heaven. But if we defy Him, and we become recalcitrant in our souls, and we shake up our fist to heaven and say, God, I don't care what you say. I don't care about your son on a cross. I don't care about your Holy Spirit coming down. This is my life. I'm going to live the life that I want to live. I'm going to do what I very well please, what I want to do. And God says, you can. And you will. And then you have to pay the price. You will be judged. I was reading this past week a book on prayer by Tim Keller, and he says these words. He says, because God the Father said no to God the Son, he says an eternal yes to his children. That's deep. Let me explain. God the Father, when his son was on the cross and said, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And God the Father says, no, you're drinking you're drinking the gall. You're drinking the, the bitter wrath of my judgment upon sin. And because Jesus Christ, glory to God, because He died on the cross for the sins of the world, everybody who believes and trusts in Him will forever be in heaven with Almighty God. He is just. He is fair. He is pure. He is righteous altogether. You don't hear a lot of sermons on the justice of God, do you? Not in this day and age. You don't hear a lot of sermons about the propitiation of God, where the Son of God bears the wrath of the Father. And all of those who believe, we go scot-free, we are forgiven, and we go to heaven. And there's our choice. Jesus can bear our sins, or we get to bear our sins forever in hell. So let's, uh, now that you're all bright and alert and so encouraged out there, let, let's begin. Amen. It's intense, isn't it? Man, Revelation is intense. You say, well, I can't wait till the end of the sermon. How did Revelation 16 change your life? I'm going to try to wait till the end of the sermon and tell you. Okay, so we're in chapter 16. I'm going to look at verse 2. This is the first plague, and it goes like this. So the earth dwellers, they are the ones on planet earth who have rejected Jesus Christ. Now listen carefully. Not only have they rejected Him, they have literally worshipped 
the Antichrist, who is a very uh, charismatic, powerful individual. He has conglomerated, he's amalgamated all the religions into one, and they pour their focus on him. Now, the follower of Christ could never do that. They could never say, I worship a man, I only worship the God-man, Jesus. And because they do that, they are executed, they die. But the rest of the world, in this future time known as the Great Tribulation, he will rise up and the people will fall down and worship him, and God pleads with them, do not do that. That will only lead you to a devil's hell. Do not do that. And people say, I don't care, God, what you say. I'm going to worship this man. And they do. And then here comes the plagues. And God sends this first plague, the seven bowls. It is called these painful sores. And these are ulcers, boils, running sores on people's bodies that cannot be healed. What does this sound like? Again, John assumes that we know our Bibles. He assumes that we know the Old Testament. Does this sound familiar to you? In Exodus chapter 9, 8 through 12, it's the sixth plague of the Egyptians. When God leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, and Pharaoh, who is a picture of these people, he defies God. He, he rebels against God. He will not let the people go, and the people suffer for it. They have these, these bowls or these boils, these painful sores. All right, the second plague is the seas into blood in verse 3. It's interesting that the second seal judgment, the second trumpet judgment, and the second bowl judgment all have to do with blood. And they have to do with judgment and death and destruction. If you remember in Exodus chapter 7, 14 through 25, it details the first Egyptian plague. You remember this? Where the the waters of the Nile and the waters of Egypt were turned into blood. Now, it's interesting in our text, it does not say that the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became as blood. That's not what it says. It says the water literally becomes the blood as of a dead man. Now, when a person dies, their heart no longer beats. And that blood became this coagulation, this congealed, this this stench within our body. Listen, if there's no heart pumping the blood through its extremities, it's not flowing, it becomes this hardened, crusty, congealed matter. And that's what God turns the seas into blood in the second plague. To me, it's the exact opposite of what He did in Genesis chapter 1. You remember this? It said, God created the seas. You know, I just haven't recently been on a a trip with my family, and, 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 and we were out on the ocean, and we, I was just looking out at the vast expanse of God's great seas. Listen, God created the seas. He created the, the animals, the mammals that live in the sea. He, he created all these things. Every living thing that moves, Genesis says, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird above in the sky according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And, and that's always God's intention. God's God's default position, if you will, is always to bless, always to love, always to give mercy and compassion and redemption and kindness. That's always God's first and foremost preeminent desire. But when we reject Him, and when we curse Him, and we tell Him we don't care about Him, we don't care about His Son that died a bloody death, we don't care about all those things in the Bible, and when we do that, we categorically reject a wholesome, holy, amazing, omnipotent God, and when we do, we suffer for it. 
Does anybody not understand that? Is this, is this so obfuscating? Is it so confusing that we can't understand it? God loves, but when we reject Him and tell Him, go away, do, go do whatever you want, just leave me alone, leave me alone, then we suffer the because God created us like He created the sea. He wants fellowship with us. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to worship Him. And when we choose not to, then we suffer. Now, the immediate effect of the death of the, cre of the creatures in the sea, it, it has an am amazing impact on planet Earth. Think about if all the seas were turned to blood, the transportation of goods would cease. It would be an ever-loving mess. And Dr. Henry Morris, he's a Ph.D. at the University of Minnesota, and he also taught Virginia, at Virginia Tech University, and he believed this, by the way. He believed all the stuff that I'm preaching. And some of y'all look at me like I'm a little crazy and I'm a little you're skeptical. You're like, you, no, it's not really going to happen. It's not going to go down like this. God's just kidding. He's just trying to frighten us. And Henry Marr said, no, he's not. This is true. And these things are yet to come. And they laughed him out of the corridors of that famous university there in the great state of Virginia. And yet he kept on preaching it. He kept on teaching it. And what was so strange about him is they had to listen because he, so, he was smarter than everybody else. He was literally the chair of the engineering department at Virginia Tech University, and he wrote these words about this very text. Here's what he said. Chemically speaking, the composition of seawater is almost identical to that of blood, so that only a relatively small modification will be necessary. In this toxic ocean, nothing will survive. And soon all the billions of fishes and marine mammals and marine reptiles and the innumerable varieties of marine invertebrates, they will perish, thus still further poisoning the oceans and contaminating the seashores of the world. And this is God's second plague poured out on planet Earth during the Great Tribulation. Let me give you the third one. It's not just the sea, but it's all the waters, the springs, the rivers, the the ponds, all these waters are turned into blood. Now, remember, these are cumulative. These are successive. First of all, you have these boils, and then you want to go get in the water. You want to try to, you know, get soothing or get some help from the springs of water. You can't because it has been turned into blood. Now, the angel of the waters who declares the righteousness of God, he interrupts these plagues in verse 5 and 6, and it's almost like God knows what we're thinking. We're like, oh God, this is too much. God, you're unjust. You're unfair. Why would you do this? And look what the angel says. He says, but you're righteous, oh God. You're the one who is and who was and who is to come. And you have judged these things. I'm in Revelation 16, 5. This is very important. Don't miss this. For they, the earth dwellers, the worshipers of Satan, they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and now you have given them blood to drink. For it is their just due. Uh, the words there are axioisin, just due. It takes us five or six words to translate just two Greek words. A translation would be this way, they are worthy of what they are receiving, or they deserve what they are receiving. One, one theologian put it like this, he said, it is the inexorable law of retribution. It is the law of retaliation. Remember when God says, do not judge, do not do not retaliate. Do not seek vengeance upon somebody because vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. He will always judge justly. He will always do that 
which is right. Remember in Genesis 18, 20, I think it's 25 or 35, where Abraham says, God, you're about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for all of their sexual sinfulness, for all of their defiance against you. And, and Abraham's nervous about this. He says, oh God, he says, but, but what if there's a few righteous people? Will you spare it? And God says, I will spare it. And you remember that prayer and it keeps going. And finally he says, God, if there's just a few righteous people, would you spare it? And God says, I will spare it. And then he says these words. He says, and God, will not you, the judge of all the earth, do the right thing? And by the way, guys, the answer to that rhetorical question is always yes. God will always do that which is just and right and pure. So in verse 7, the angel speaks on God's behalf, and this angel is from the altar in heaven. Did you see that? And I heard another from the altar in heaven saying, even so, watch this. The Greek reads this way, Kyrios, Lord, definite article, Theos, definite article, Pantocrator. You can translate it this way. You are Lord, the God, the Almighty God, and you are just and true and righteous in all of your judgments. You remember in Revelation chapter 6, there's a group of people who've been slain. They have become martyrs for the Christian faith. And by the way, that's not very uncommon today, is it? Every day, every single day. There are men and women just like you and me who love Jesus Christ, and they are getting decapitated, they are being tortured, they are dying violent deaths all over the Middle East, all over North Africa, and many people believe it's just a matter of time till it comes to our land. And by the way, this is only going to escalate until Jesus comes again. And those martyred souls under the altar in heaven, they say, Lord, how much longer? God, when will you not come and, and give them their just reward? And, and God, will you not come and vindicate the righteous? God, when? And God waits. God waits. Just like He's waiting now. You know why He waits? You know why He, he, he stays His hand of judgment? You know why He doesn't pour out wrath now? It's because He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of compassion. And He's a God who's written us a love letter. And he's told us over and over and over what's going to happen. He's told us repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly what's going to happen. He's telling you again and again and again what is going to happen. Now listen, if God didn't give us any warning and God just came and zapped and judged, we, we, we might be able to say, well, God, that was kind of, kind of harsh. But here I am, and I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. Believe, repent. Be saved, be spared the judgment of God, or don't, and be eternally condemned. Now, the fourth plague is this scorching heat. Now, I don't know how in the world this is going to go down, but it says in verse 8, the fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun, and power was given him to scorch men with fire. Dr. Morris, he says three things are going to happen. Number one, the normal activity of the water cycle and atmospheric movements are going to be so changed that the only water that could reach earth when this happens will be hail and tornadic activity. Number two, he says, coastal earth slides will produce massive tsunami waves that will destroy all the cities along the coast of this world. And thirdly, he says, the great ice sheets in Greenland and the continent of Antarctica will melt. And when this happens, 
The great cities of the world on the coast will be destroyed. Cities like New York, Tokyo, London, Los Angeles, Rio de Janeiro, Rome, Athens, Beirut, Singapore, Hong Kong, on and on and on. They will not be able to withstand when the sun is altered and when it changes its complexity and it changes the way it treats this planet, then there's going to be wrath of God. Many people will die, but many will not. And in verse 9, i got to be honest, when I first read this, when I first studied this 10 years ago, when I got to verse 9, I was like, well, finally, I know what these people are going to do. They're going to say, God, you are, you are awesome, you are it, and I'm sorry, and please forgive me, but that's not what happens, is it? It says, they blasphemed the name of God. They cursed God. The very God who created them, the very God who is exacting punishment upon them, they cursed Him, the one who had the very power over these plagues. Now look at, look at verse 9 and we're done. Here's the key to understanding this whole thing. They refused to repent of their sins, and they refused to give God glory. For you see, at this time, you think sexual sin is rampant now. Wait, wait till this time frame. Mankind has been just absolutely enamored and overwhelmed and inundated with sexual liberty, sexual sin. And I'm talking about homosexual sin, I'm talking about bestiality sin, I'm talking about multiple partner sin, bisexual, transgender, I mean, all of this stuff. You think it's, you think it's intense now. It will be absolutely out of control in the future. I mean, the, the ravenous appetite for sensuality, those people are going to say, I am going to sleep and party and do like I want to do. I refuse you, God. How dare you tell me who I can sleep with, who I cannot sleep with? How dare you tell me I cannot do what I want to do? I repent. I don't repent. I reject you. And I think of the words, you MFGD. You and they start telling him, say that to God. And I was so, I, when I first read this, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Have these people lost their minds? So here's what this passage does to me. I don't know what it does to you, but here's what it does. And I don't know what it does to you except make you very quiet and listening. But here's what it does to me. It changed my life. Ten years ago, when I was studying this passage, almost 11 years ago, and <clears throat> just, just like I do today, I'd study hard in the mornings, write the manuscript. And after this text, I said, God, i got to get out of this office. If this is true, and people are going to face you in judgment, i, I got to go tell them. Literally, pastor in this big church in Virginia, I get out of my little office, and I run to the streets. I, I run to the mall. I get out of my car. And, and pity the soul, the first soul that I see. I'm, I'm so enamored with Jesus. I said, I just got to go tell somebody about Jesus. And I see this Sikh, you know, with the wrapped turban in his head. And I said, that's who I got to go talk to. And so I went up to him, true story. And when I walked up to this guy, I said, sir, how are you doing? He said, I'm fine. Are you a Christian? I said, no, not me. I'm, no, no, I'm not a Christian. No, that's not what I said. I said, yeah, I, I, I am a follower of Christ. He said, I'm not. He said, you may think I'm a Muslim. He said, but I'm not a Muslim. I am a Sikh. I said, okay. And he began to evangelize me. No, I'm serious. 
I'm serious. I had not said anything about Jesus. I just walked up to him and said, sir, how are you doing? He said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah. And he began to tell me about Sikhism. And by the way, I've studied Sikhism since then, and it is a fascinating religion. It combines the reincarnation of of Hinduism with the monotheism of Islam, and they're very strict. And this is what he told me. He says, listen, there's really no difference, not much difference between your religion and my religion. I said, oh, really? Tell me. He said, you have a holy book? We have a holy book. You have a holy prophet? We have a holy prophet. You have holy places of worship? We have holy places of worship. We are 90% the same. To which I said, oh, but sir, within that 10%, there is a world of difference. And you know what I did? I told him about a Savior who died on a cross, about a man named Jesus who took all the sins of the world, paid the price, arose from the dead, outstretched arms, said, if anybody, come, if anybody believes, let him come, and let him drink from the water that I give, and he will never thirst again. Let him eat of the nutrients and the food that I give, he will never hunger again. Let him rest under the shade that I provide, he will never be scorched again. I said, sir, there is a massive difference between in the 10%. Just this week, yesterday, I was studying this message, and we're out and about in the community. And by the way, deacons, thank you. God bless you. We're out helping a local uh, school in, the, in our area, and a guy says, why, why are y'all doing this? Why, why, are you, why are you doing this? And I said, well, we're, we're doing this because we're followers of Jesus. And Jesus said to go and do and serve and help and love. And the gentleman was very kind. He says, well, I'm not much of a, of a churchgoer. He said, but, but he said, now tell me again, why are y'all doing this? It's just fascinating to him. And so if you believe the Bible, if you believe Revelation especially, then it, it will change you. If you have a modicum, a residue of, of compassion for other people who don't know Christ, you will genuinely tell them and love them basically because you don't want the things that are going to happen to happen to them. <clears throat> so let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll have our invitation. And we'll ask the Lord to do what only He can do during this time, that He speak to your heart. He would encourage you to be a strong witness for Him in these crazy days in which we live. Revelation chapter 16 is an intense, it's a powerful passage of Scripture, and yet God has revealed it to us. God has given it. You would think reading this and preaching this that it was another book, but it's not. It's the Word of God. It's the book of beginnings in Genesis. It's the book of endings. It's called Revelation, the unveiling of Christ, the unveiling of God's judgment, His punitive, retributive judgment on planet earth. And I just got to ask you today, sir, ma'am, I need to ask you a question. Will you allow Jesus Christ to bear your sin, or are you going to try to bear your sin yourself? The first choice will lead to forgiveness. It will lead to joy and life. It will lead to being a servant of God. But the second will lead to punishment and damnation and retribution of God upon your life because you rejected Him. You, you told Him, thanks but no thanks. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And when you do that, then you cast your fate and your judgment. But oh God, I thank You today. I thank You that You have preserved Your Word. God, we are without excuse. If this thing goes down, God, the way You say it's going to go down, then we will forever be without excuse because You told us. You warned us, and God forbid that we try to judge you, but Lord, you are the judge, and you judge us. Lord, 
As Psalm 119 says, and as this text says, your judgments, O God, are true and righteous altogether. So, Lord, I pray today, I, I pray for each person within the sound of my voice, for those that will hear this message on television, for those, God, that are hearing this message live feed on the internet, and for those that are in this very service today, I pray, God, there would be a, just a sense, Lord, of, oh, God, I love you, and God, give me compassion. God, give me a sense of urgency for those that don't know Christ. And church family, with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, I've shared this with you many times, and I hope to share it with you many more times, that God never holds us accountable for the response of the individual. He doesn't. They are responsible. They are accountable. But God does hold you responsible to tell them, to share with them. Oh, Brother Danny, you don't understand. If I really told people this kind of story, I would probably get fired. I'd probably get laughed at. They'd probably boycott my house in my neighborhood. They would think I'm one of those religious, crazy, fanatic, freak people. Listen, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Is it true? Is it false? If it's false, let's close our doors and go home. Let's go to the lake. <laughs> Man, let's, let's take a vacation. Let's get out of here if all of this is false. But if it's true, Oh, God, if it's true, then how dare we not just love people, share with people, and bear the brunt of their rejection, bear the brunt of their shame. Our brothers and our sisters all over the world, they're bearing the name of Jesus and they're losing their life. The least I can do is lose my reputation. The least I can do is have a door slammed in my face. The least I can have is to be passed over for my promotion at work. It's minuscule. It's small. And so, Father, I just pray in Jesus' name that you would do, Lord, what only you can do. When a sermon like this is preached in a text like this, I, I just pray that you would speak to your people. Lord, encourage them, motivate them. And, Lord, I do pray for those. And there are many, I believe many, that are listening today. They never one time have understood the gospel. They, they never understood until today that, God, you are for them. You're not against them. You invite them to receive you by faith. I pray that they would do that today. So how do I do that? <laughs> how do I escape hell and serve God and go to heaven? I'm, you've got my attention. How do I do that? Here's what you do. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't do enough good deeds to do it. All of that's been done through Jesus. I know it's, it's absolutely amazing. I know it's the greatest irony and paradox of the universe that one man, could live a clean, spotless life and purchase your redemption on a cross with His blood, and all you have to do is believe. I know it's amazing. It's the paradox of all paradoxes. It is the irony of all ironies, but it's God's solution to our sin problem. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. I'm going to invite you to receive God today. I'm going to ask you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Accept Him by faith and trust in Him. Call upon His name. The Bible says, today is a day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't delay. Say, God, I'm yours. I trust in you. I believe in you. I give you my life, a full surrender of my life to you. Now, what we'd like for you to do is tell somebody before you leave this campus today. Maybe lean over to the person to your left or to your right. You may want to come find one of these pastors or counselors here at the altar and just say, hey, I've given my life to Christ. Now, what do I do? How do I walk with Him? How do I serve Him? And we'll be glad to tell you how. So, Lord, we love you. We commit this invitation to you. Pray that you would bless it. 
Because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.